You are listening to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this podcast, I read through the works of Philip K. Dick one at a time, chapter by chapter, page by page, giving my commentary, thoughts, and opinions, and um, that's it. Today, uh, this episode, will be looking at The Skull. The Skull was published in IF in September 1952. I'm going through the chronological order of publication. This actually came out in the same month as the previous story, The Gun. I guess I just, you know, wasn't sure which came first, literally came out in print first, but they came out in the same month. Um, so, uh, as with always, I'll start with a plot summary of this story. Um, so, this, the novel set 200 years in the future. Uh, there's a prisoner named Omar Conger, and he's being brought before the authorities uh, on the council, and including in this council is the speaker. So these are these are the characters in authority in the, on, you know, on Earth 200 years into the future. Um, he was arrested as a hunter or as a trapper or some you know some kind of criminal, and he's being told he can use those skills to serve the state and maybe get out of you know his penalty, you know, um, if he if he does this job for the government. He immediately knows that this will be an assassination because that's what he's good for. That's what his skills are useful for. The speaker uh, brings Conger to the first church. Uh, now, the first church is is one of the dominant religions in the world, at, you know, at the at this point, uh, and the major religion that's being really confronted by the state authorities. And runs away. We we think of the Roman situation. Of course, the Romans had. You know, we're facing Christianity, a new growing religion. Uh, now, of course, Roman, you know, discriminate, uh, discrimination, that's the right term, uh, persecution of Christians, you know, it happened. It, it's sometimes a bit overstated. It wasn't a constant persecution. There were a few emperors who, who really had a problem with them, particularly Diocletian. And that was followed by Constantine, who, of course, made the Roman Empire. Um, he started the process of making the Roman Empire Christian, and he became a Christian himself. Some writers on the Roman Empire, you know, suggested that Christianity was one of the causes of Rome's fall. And that's certainly in the DNA of the story. This idea that Christianity is going to be, or, or this new religion, the first church, is going to be a threat to this empire. Um, and the timeline about works. You know, here we got, within 200 years, Christianity was a major force in the Roman Empire. It had a lot of communities a lot, throughout the Roman Empire. It was known to the authorities. Uh, it was persecuted from time to time. It was a point of concern. Um, Constantine begins this process of conversion in the year, you know, in the, th the fourth century. So, you know, the f if the speaker is thinking about well, the Roman Empire, he's thinking in terms of, you know, maybe in the next century or so, this first church is going to take over um, authority in, in this empire, in this future government. Now, maybe Dick's not thinking about the Roman Empire, but I have a hard time. I really doubt it. Uh, so the first church preaches a doctrine of nonviolence and resignation to death. So these are two aspects of it. And, and, and there are Christian parallels here, certainly in the nonviolence. Um, resignation to death, there's that too. There's a lot of martyrdom in the early Christian tradition. There's this idea that this world doesn't really matter. It's really heaven. It's the, it's the life after death that things really matter in. Now, this is not appealing to people with violent pasts, certainly not like Conger, who 
is a violent criminal, and certainly not to a state which enforces its rule through violence. They locate in the first church the remains of the founder of the first church. So they got the skull and the skeleton, so, so they're able to one-up Christianity because they actually have the body of the founder. Uh, and a soldier arrives to basically seize the remains from, from the first church. Now the speaker and Conger go back and they discuss the history of the first church, giving some exposition for the benefit of the reader. It began in the 20th century. The movement ha that the founder began, so there's this man named the founder. He's not, it's not I know, I'm not sure if he's really presented as a religious figure. He's just the first person who's expressing these ideas. Um, you know, not supernatural anyways. And th this is a point I'm going to get to later on. You know, the supernatural or the non-supernatural origins of religions. So he's the one who started. He preached that violence was futile and simply med led to more conflict. They also embraced a form of Luddism, rejecting the mechanization of life. And they have some kind of Christian-like aesthetic values, such as giving to the poor, personal modesty, a rejection of the importance of public life. The speaker's opinion is that these values are undermining progress. In a sense, we almost have a flip side to the story stability, and you can go back and look at that episode on stability, where there the government is really devoted to stopping progress and preventing backslippage. Here, the government is interested in a forward progress using almost Darwinian language and doing that. The speaker talks about how war has this effect of, of improving society by really pruning out those people who have become degraded, who have become degraded, degenerate, useless, weak. There's a kind of almost a fascist idea in, in the speaker's attitude towards war. So anyways, as you might suspect, Conger is charged with going back in time and killing the founder before he speaks to start the movement. And we actually have the quote. Uh, the founder is not really well known. Um, there's not much known about him. They don't really have a history of him. They just know where he died, and he's got one quote. This is the quote that starts his whole religion. The quote is, Those who take lives will lose their own. Those who kill will die. But he who gains his own life away will live again. That's the only quote. And that's been interpreted by later theologians and thinkers in this, in this way. Uh, and that's become the foundational, the founding theology of this church. They're only able to identify who the founder is through the skull. They know the general time and place where he died and where he made his first public, well, where he made his first public experience, appearance, which is essentially where he died. So Conger's given this time travel cage and a gun. It's called the Slim Gun. It's, I guess, some future laser beam gun. And he's given this uh, task to basically kill the founder. Conger immediately sets out for the past after learning how to use the gun and use the cage. He arrives in the mid-20th century, specifically on April 5th, 1961. Conger goes to the library and tries to locate clues about where the founder might be. In old newspapers, he finds what he thinks is evidence of the founder's original speech. The article reports simply that a man was arrested for unlawfully speaking in December of the previous year at Cooper Creek. As he leaves, several people express shock at seeing him. He uses the device and then goes back in time. So goes back in time again, this time to one year earlier to where the founder made his first appearance. Um, Congress brought to the home of some friendly people. Now there's warnings in the government of reds. So in 1961, 1960, where the founder first appeared, were given a quasi-police state. There the fears, 
the Reds, the communists. And one thing that's going to be overarching all of these early Philip K. Dick stories is the Red Scare. It comes up most strongly in his early novel, The Eye in the Sky, but it, it's there in a lot of these early stories. The, the paranoia over the Red Scare, uh, the police, the power of police to suppress individual rights. Um, this is really coming from the Red Scare, the House on american Activities Committee, McCarthyism, all that is in Dick's mind in these early stories. So you have these government warnings about Reds. You know, don't watch out for suspicious persons. And of course, Conger, a newcomer into this town, asking questions, looking around, is, you know, one of these suspicious persons. So later, walking through a store, some customers talk about how strange he is since he wears a beard that makes him a little bit look like a bit like Karl Marx. So this might be a little bit of red herring. You, you might have an idea of where the story is going already, um, but it's it, it's kind of there's a wrench thrown into it here where he's presented looking at like Karl Marx. And I don't know if, if you know, did, I guess Jesus didn't have a Karl Marx um, beard, but giving him a beard here is a nice touch. Um, Conger, you know, gets picks basically hitchhikes to Cooper Creek. He's picked up by a man named Bill. Uh, and there's a woman named Laura that Conger suspects is this man Bill's mistress. They discuss where Conger is from, his strange accent, um, and his strange behavior. The next day, Conger is still accompanied by Laura and Bill. Bill gets suspicious of Conger and, to avoid a confrontation, uses his gun to escape the, gel um, the jealous Bill. Well, he uses his gun. Well, so Conger uses his gun to escape bill who um, is getting increasingly suspicious of conger now escaping bill conger is questioned by the sheriff over a strange blast of light that accompanied the use of his gun he also learns that it's december 1st 1860 only 12 hours from when the founder will be arrested for an illegal demonstration he prepares himself for the assassination by going to the location where the founder will speak while he waits he thinks about how the founder would feel about seeing his own skull his thoughts are interrupted by Laura, who warns him that the police have arrived due to rumors that he is a communist agent. So once again, he's not being arrested as a deviant religious speaker. He's being investigated as, as a communist. Now, I guess there's a level here of maybe communism being a religion or seen as religion. There, that's certainly a theme, I think, in pop culture in the 50s. You know, this idea that you know communism is not really a political or economic philosophy, but almost a religion, an insidious virus of the mind that will go around and spread and, and you know corrupt people's um, people's behavior through through the mind almost like a, a religion the rumors apparently began when he was at the supermarket Laura with the help of her father's friend uh, friend Joe French planned Conger's escape but Conger decides to stay to complete his task. He's still thinking about going to become a, you know, he wants his freedom uh, someday if he goes back to the past. So he wants to complete the assassination. But at this point, Conger takes a closer look at the skull. And he realizes that the teeth of the skull match his own. He figures out that he's the founder. So he goes out to meet the police. He confesses that he has a gun, but he doesn't plan to use it anymore. Obviously, he's not going to kill himself. But before being killed by the police, Conger understands why the people at the library were so shocked to see him in the when he was in you know the previous year when he was in one year later, and that is he's supposed to be dead. He died in this police standoff. He offers up this cryptic cryptic statement, which makes sense to him as kind of just a joke about his situation. 
of course, it can be interpreted by people who heard it in religious terms, preaching nonviolence. So again, the quote is, those who take lies will lose their own. Those who kill will die. But he who gives his life will live again. So it, it's, a, it's an explanation of this time travel paradox, right? Those who take lives will lose their own. He's an assassin and he's going to lose his life. Those who kill will die. It's, it's the same meaning there. But those who give his own life away, he's going to allow himself to be killed by the police, will live again. And he will live again because he'll be born sometime in the future and live out his life. So he's got this uh, kind of eternal return, I suppose. More of a cyclical situation, not quite the true eternal return. This statement is about his own circumstances, but it will be applied applied to the founder of the first church and it'll be the foundation of a theology. Now, I don't know if we can like, you know, kind of give up an explanation like this to the statements given to Jesus. Um, of course, Dick knows what we know of what Jesus actually said is pretty limited. Most of what we have came years later, written down by believers, people in the early Christian community. There's very little, if anything at all, in the Gospels that we can actually say this is what Jesus said. So it's true that Christianity itself is kind of based on pretty sparse evidence from the founder. I think Dick knew that very well. And although he did express himself as a Christian, I'm not sure he was a like a fundamental, or he certainly wasn't a fundamentalist style Christian who believed every word of the text was literal truth. Um, now, Dick has often been seen as a mystical writer. He has a mystical side of the modern science fiction movement, right? Um, this is often due to his later novels, and, and starting with stories like The Black Box, certainly The Faith of the Fathers, and then he, going on with his later novels, the late 70s, early 80s novels like Vallis, um, The Divine Invasion, and those things. He's really exploring religion. It's full of mystical and quasi-religious speculation. And he wrote this massive exegesis. He spent much of the last decade of his life writing out uh, explanations for experiences that happened to him in the middle of the 1970s. Um, really trying to get to the philosophical and religious ex ramifications of those experiences. There's even a short documentary that reinforces this idea called The Gospel According to Philip K. Dick. Um, actually, that's not a very great documentary. I, I don't think that much of it. There's better documentaries out there. But it actually it was the first I ever watched. I remember renting it back in the days when you still rented videos. I think I was living in Eugene, Oregon at the time. Maybe it was when I was in Albany. I remember renting it. I, I guess I don't remember exactly where I was when I rented it. Now, I think this, after reading all of his work several times, I think this religious narrative is sometimes overblown. Sometimes it's really an application of what happens to him in the late 70s and pushing it back on his earlier work. I think this story is actually a better representation of what his early commentary on religion was. It almost, like in this one, it lacks these supernatural elements. The Skull is Dick's first story on the theme of religion. If we set aside the kind of transmutation of souls we saw in Beyond Lies the Wub. As we see in this story, Dick is considering the origin of religion in an almost entirely realistic way. We could say preternatural because while it seems religious to those who experience it, there's a fully logical scientific explanation based on time travel. I do think I'm using the word preternatural there correctly. That is something that is beyond the normal, but not necessarily supernatural, right? Like maybe it's something like the Aurora Borealis, right? It's got a it's got an explanation that most people maybe don't know, or certainly early humans didn't know. So to them, it seems supernatural, but underneath it, there's a, a fully 
realist, a fully natural explanation for that. We also can think back to the theme, for instance, in Rug, where you have in the story Rug. Well, I'll, I'll upload that later because that's actually published. It was written earlier, but it was published a little bit later, where you actually have humans and dogs apparently perceiving garbage men in very different ways. Here it's a quote that gets perceived in different ways depending on who listens to it. And this is something that will even come up in a, in a really short, almost a joke, it's less a story than, a, than it is a prose joke, called The Eyes Have It. The skull is a, as a, you know, it's a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment attempting to give a naturalistic explanation for the resurrection of Christ, or based on the application of time travel, right? Because here we have actually you know, something I guess I didn't highlight when I did the plot summary is a resurrection story too, right? So the founder was killed in 1860 in December 1860, and he appears a year later. Um, so there, it's hard not to think when you read this that maybe. Uh, Dick is playing with the idea of resurrection and, you know, Christ appearing before people after he has been killed. And how could you explain that without supernatural elements? Well, maybe time travel is a way we could explain that. As a science fiction writer, he is curious about the origins of faith. And I think many science fiction writers actually are interested in this question of, of how faiths originate. Resurrection here can be explained simply by the repeated use of a time travel device. At the same time, Dick is pointing out that the original intention of spiritual founders is less important than what later followers put on these religious leaders. Conger shares none of the values of the founder. He's certainly not a nonviolent man. He doesn't believe in uh, Luddism. He wants to use technology. He uses it to further his own interests. And even at the end, it's not like he has an epiphany at the end. He's just laughing at the ridiculousness of his situation. It doesn't... Um, I mean, he changed. He's, he's just maybe fatalistic at the end, but he's certainly not a nonviolent Luddite. The founder, therefore, is purely a construction of the people who interpreted his brief message and were moved by his posthumous appearance in the library. The first church is Dick's first well-developed theological vision. In the skull, uh, we also see a presentation of a choice between peace and war between social Darwinian violence and self-sacrificial solidarity. The first church represents the survival of the ideas of nonviolence, the ideas of solidarity, despite the intensive efforts by the state to promote a culture of war and conflict. Despite the efforts of an authoritarian state, the ideas of the founder survive and thrive. Its mere existence poses threats to the power structure. Dick does not seem to think that religion poses a unique and effective challenge to government, or does this, sorry, he does think that religion is posing a unique and effective challenge to government. This will come up again in the black box and several other stories too, where religion is what can undermine the authoritarian state. So again, we're given this clear choice between Darwinian, survival of the fittest, I should correct that, survival of the fittest is more of the kind of the Herbert Spencer social Darwinian idea. So we're given a clear choice between the social Darwinian approach and the Christian option of self-sacrifice and solidarity. And I'll quote Dick here on this point. This is the speaker talking to Conger, explaining to him the church. The movement, oh, sorry, the founder was an obscure person from a small town in the American Middle West. We don't even know his name. All we know is that one day he appeared preaching a doctrine of non-violence, non-resistance, no fighting, no paying taxes for guns, no research except for medicine. 
Live out your lives quietly, tending your garden, staying out of public affairs, mind your own business, be obscure, unknown, poor. Give away most of your possessions, leave the city. At least that's what's developed from what, his pe- what he told the people. The founder preached this doctrine, or the germ of it. There's no telling how much the faithful have added themselves. The local authorities picked them up at once, of course. Apparently they were convinced that he meant it. He was never released. He was put to death and his body buried secretly. It seems the cult was finished. Now, a little bit later on, you get an explanation. This is contrasted. This is on the same page, but a few paragraphs later. Contrasting with what the view of the, 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 uh, the speaker and the government in charge is. The wars? Well, there were no more wars. It must be acknowledged that the elimination of wars was the direct result of nonviolence practiced on a general scale. But we can take a more objective view of war today. With no ter- What's so terrible about it? War has had a profound selective value, perfectly in accord with the teachings of Darwin and Mendel and others. Without war, the mass of useless, incompetent mankind, without training or intelligence, is permitted to grow and expand unchecked. War acted to reduce their numbers, like storms and earthquakes and droughts. It's nature's way of eliminating the unfit. Without war, the lower elements of mankind have increased all out of proportion. They threaten the educated few, those with scientific knowledge and training, the ones equipped to direct society. They have no regard for science or scientific society based on reason. And this movement seeks to aid and abet them. Only when scientists are in full control can they, and then it's cut off. So not only Darwinian, we have technocracy in this brief quote being praised. Another thing Dick did not care for and wrote against pretty aggressively. We have Malthusianism as well. This idea of the unchecked growth of population as a danger to society. Here we also have an anti-technological argument. Uh, well, you've been a Luddite argument given through the first church that conforms pretty closely with where Dick would end up. Throughout his career, pretty consistently, he thinks that technological systems, if not individual technologies, although he doesn't trust those as often as not, but certainly technological systems are a threat to human liberty and more importantly, human solidarity. It was in the 20th century when the movement began, during one of the periodic wars. Now, let me stop there and interrupt the quote for a moment. You know, historians sometimes look back and say, you know, nowadays, like maybe we should look at World War I and World War II as kind of a new 30 years war. I've heard that argument made a couple times. If you're Philip K. Dick writing in the 1950s, you got World War I, you got a few years without war, and then you got another war. And you have the Cold War. You have the build nuclear buildup. You have conflict with Russia. You have the Korean War breaking out around the time that, you know, though no, while the story was written, the Korean War had been going on for a couple of years. How do you not think there's just going to be more and more wars? You know, the idea of perpetual wars, you know, certainly is not bizarre. The fact that we didn't have a third world war during the 50s, 60s is probably a by luck, by chance, right? Um, so... Dick presenting, assuming there's going to be another war. You know, it's not not surprising in this context. But anyways, moving on to the quote. The movement developed rapidly, feeding on the general sense of futility, the realization that each war was breeding greater war with no end in sight. The movement posed a simple answer to the problem. Without military preparations, weapons, there could be no war. And without machinery and complex uh, scientific technocracy, there could be no weapons. The movement preached that you couldn't stop war by planning for it. They preached that man was losing to his machinery and science, that it was getting away from him. 
pushing him into greater and greater wars. Down with society, they shouted. Down with factories and science. A few more wars and there wouldn't be much left in the world. End quote. So that's another major theme of technocracy and technology in general. Luddism. Finally, you know, I read this story before I posted it on my blog, Philip K. Dick Review. In fact, a lot of the summary I just kind of read from that. But one thing I, I realized when I when I reread this to prepare for this podcast was police repression. Both time periods were in eight, 1960s and the 200 years in the future are police states, right? Um, now, in the one, the fear is this new religion. In the previous one, it's communism. Right, but both created a police state where individual rights are suppressed. There's paranoia about your neighbors. It's more, I guess, finely tuned in the description of the 1960s where people don't trust each other. Um, you know, there are people informing on the police. You have a strong police power that can shoot people down in the streets. It's a constant theme through through both times. So police violence. Um, maybe it's because now that I reread it, I have Black Lives Matter in the back of my head shaping how I might look at these stories, but police repression there in both periods. So that's something we can watch out for in future works by Philip K. Dick. Well, that will do it for this episode on the skull. It's a really nice little story. It's a lot of fun, um, as many of these stories are quite a bit of fun. He gets pretty bleak in some of the novels, but I, I think his stories have a lot of joy and f just fun ideas in them. If you have any comments or opinions, please leave them here, or you can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, or share it. You may also want to visit my 100 Pages cast episodes. These look at American writers. Uh, I read their works 100 pages at a time. Uh, but if not, you can continue and subscribe just so you can listen to my Philip uh, K. Dick reviews. I'll be doing this probably for at least a couple years before I'm done. So thanks so much for listening, and I'll sign off. Our next episode is The Little Movement. And that will actually finish up 1952 in terms of publication anyways. And we'll jump right into 1953. Many stories in 1953. A couple dozen, I think. Well, thanks. Uh, see you next time.